You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. In this side series, we explore the history of philosophy and its most notable thinkers, from Socrates to Nietzsche, covering all the big ideas and the ground up. Enjoy! Yeah, so the pre-Socratics. I love a bit of pre-Socratics. A bit of them. So you studied the pre... Did you study any pre-Socratic stuff at uni? Or Ages ago, their like, first year. I just thought, um, since they're the first philosophers ever, it'd be nice to talk about them. They deserve a big shout-out. It's your boy, Thales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to look back at them because I think they're really important. And I want to work out kind of why they're so important, why these first ever philosophers are important, why they can be considered the first philosophers whether they can be rightfully considered the first kind of scientists or proto-scientists or and what sense we can make from those kind of terms and basically why we should even care at all about a bunch of guys that died thousands of years ago. Right. So what reading did you do? Did you read anything? Not very much at all. Um, I <laughs> Great. Like just reading about like Thales or whatever was fine when it was like the philosophy, but I think a lot of, a lot of especially with the pre-Socratics, it's, it's history and it's sort of like secondary sources of unreliable stuff where you're talking about s- stuff that Aristotle wrote down about like Thales, for example, is all that we really have. About- yeah, I think that's why they're so interesting because we only have fragments of what these guys said. Yeah. Yeah, it's managed to survive and their influence is still basically being felt. I mean, I mean, it's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but Plato is essentially the first philosopher who bothered to write things down, the b- first big philosopher. Before that, you had Socrates and Plato aristotle and so between those three you kind of get every question or at least the start of every question that would ever be asked in philosophy but yet i think you need to kind of understand those guys in the context that they were writing before and these pre-socratic guys so that obviously there's just to call them pre-socratic says something the fact that all these people like that must have meant that socrates changed things significantly so i think to to work out why Socrates changed things so significantly, you kind of have to look at these pre-Socratics. Right. Well, to set the scene a bit, so we're, we're sort of talking about like 6th and 7th century BC, um, mm. sort of in the, around sort of Greece and Western Turkey. I think like people like Thales and whatever were um, from Ionia, which is now sort of Western Turkey. Miletus. Um, but the pro- I think part of the problem is like uh, the t- even the term pre-Socratic, like a lot of philosophers tried to, avoid using it simply because i mean a lot of uh, the philosophers that are grouped into um the pre-socratic sort of era are were actually some of them were contemporaries of socrates you know a lot of it is more to do with the idea that and i think the the pragmatic way in which it's used is more to do with their philosophers that were not influenced by socrates at least they were they came before socrates and his socratic method and all these sorts of things and i think also a lot of the accounts of them are difficult to know exactly how true they are i mean like some people will say that pythagoras didn't even exist he was actually just like a culmination of ideas that sort of became a cult and whatever and he was more of became almost more of a mythical figure um than an actual necessarily an individual and it's, it's difficult to say whether pythagorean theorem was even actually discovered necessarily by him or whether ba- the babylonians got there first or you know whether it was one of his um 
students that you know wrote wrote a lot of this down because again a lot of the, there's not very many primary sources you have like fragments of poems and things sometimes it is literally just um, one word yeah just yeah. even like words written down by some of these individuals but most of it like like you said sort of came through aristotle and plato later on who were writing down stuff and accounts of these people and probably you know exaggerating them they, they, they became a lot of you know they're sort of like legend um yeah well i think that's that's what's so powerful about these guys in terms of the ideas they represent and so you mentioned like we don't know exactly who's who and whether some of these people really existed but i think that's obviously true of jesus and right yeah siddhartha gautama buddha yeah so it doesn't make them any less compelling or interesting or say that to say that we can't say things about them and socrates is kind of another one that almost falls into that category because he never wrote anything down so we don't really have much of an understanding of what he's like right how yeah. much is how much are we talking about socrates and how much are we talking about Plato writing after him. Right. And also, you know, um, them sort of idolising Socrates as he was one of their teachers, you know. Yeah. Um, how much do they sort of play up to the stuff like the death of Socrates? Like, how much is that them just going, yeah, Socrates was such a lad, he just didn't give a yeah. didn't care at all, you know, um, the whole time during his trial or whatever. Like, how much is that true and how much is that sort of played up to this their idea of this this idealised sort of version of Socrates that mm. was ended up being written down? And I think a lot, a lot of that does apply to the pre-Socratics, where it's like, maybe a lot of these ideas weren't necessarily entirely attributed to, to these individuals, um, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it, that's the kind of the way history has fallen and sort of these individuals become, become associated with the ideas that they came up with, um, which is, a, you know, it's a fine way to group things. Yeah, I, well, I, I think with, as a general rule with all these figures, the way to sort of approach it is the burden of proof kind of thing. It's like, well, if you, unless you have a reason to say that wasn't the case, we might as well just assume that most of this stuff was true because the sources all kind of tell us that it was. But yeah, I, I think it, the ideas they represent are probably more interesting than some of the things they said. At least if you take some of those things at face value, like a lot of the things we're probably going to talk about are going to seem like nonsense, just mm. as usual, but like actual nonsense, like the world is made of fire or the world is made of water and things. It's like, well, these are just weird ideas. They don't, they're not obviously not true, but I think in terms of the, the methods they use to try and get to those ideas is what's what paradigmatically shifted this from earlier mythology and things like that. But yeah, just to set a little bit more context, this is like a, just a really dynamic, incredible time. Like Aristotle's not a native Athenian. He's, uh, I think he was from Turkey, but he's he's definitely a foreigner. It's like the influence of of like intellectual conversation is is pretty massive on a scale that the world would never see again until maybe the Islamic period, maybe the Enlightenment. Historically speaking, a lot of this was encouraged by. I mean, this this was a massive hub of trade across you know so many aspects parts of the Mediterranean. I think that enormous amount of trade that was going on um, was influential in, you know, in how a lot of these people had loads of fresh ideas sort of knocking about. It was also sort of the, you know, the point at which the sort of uh, Middle East and the West was kind of joined together, if you like. So you had all these ideas kind of mingling together. And- yeah, well, I think you mentioned to me the other day, because obviously we did that po- podcast on Stoicism. You were saying that Stoicism is kind of be seen as a, an Eastern import. Yeah, unfortunately, I was not in that podcast. Yeah. I told you. Oh, yeah, I mean, I yeah. think a lot of the ideas um, that were are attributed to starting in Greece um, were uh, were weirdly like intermingled with so many ideas that were floating around with these trade routes around the time. Mm. You could say that there was, you know, some elements of Stoicism were influenced by Eastern ideas, or probably were in in many ways, because all these ideas were kind of cross pollinating. 
um, around yeah. this time, you know. And this is really, without contention, you can basically say this is the start of Western civilization as we know it and track the gene- genealogy of all the ideas back to this place, really. So that, I think that that's another reason why it's it's so important. A lot of the reason why we this is the place where a lot of people start philosophy and start tracing stuff back is because this is the first time we actually have proper records or historical records of individuals. You know, even though they are secondary sources, it's the first time we kind of got anything written down about anyone who had any kind of you know ideas in this way. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily to say that there weren't um, thinkers and some ideas that were occurring beforehand, but it's just the the pre Socratics were sort of if not the first people to start writing it down, then at least the first people to have been written about that were starting to think about um, the universe in a slightly different way. And I suppose we should get on to how their thinking was kind of different um, to what preceded them. At first, there's this uh, discipline. They're basically lawyers. They, they come along and um, they make arguments for you. They're kind of like rhetoricians who argue your case and they, they make more intellectual arguments. And this is kind of where the, the analytic side of philosophy comes from. Who am I thinking of? What's the school of thought? Not the cynics, not the stoics, not the Epicureans. He's a sophist. Sophism basically starts a lot of, of these ideas. And but through this, through um this uh it's I kind of want to use the word secular, but it, it it's basically it it doesn't it doesn't care whether ideas are supernatural or as they kind of will start to become through this process, natural, naturalistic. Through that kind of argumentation, people start to think, well, maybe this can be applied to make arguments for how the world is. Right. They were the first attempts to try and come up with some kind of naturalistic explanation for uh, what they were observing in the world, rather than just necessarily myth or using gods to always explain everything. And, you know, in Homer and Hesiod, like the sort of writing in that era was like, um, it's all about story and it's like everything is imbued with gods and gods are like sort of like what moves the world and what creates the world and what um, is causing things to happen in the world in some sense. And they, they, they have both control and, you know, um, and it wasn't until, you know, you, you get the first sort of pre-Socratics that people were starting to go, well, hang on, maybe there are, maybe some elements of the world are actually sort of predictable or have some patterns to them or have some kind of mechanic mechanical explanation like perhaps um and you know many of the pre-socratics you know starting with i think one of the one of the earliest at least one aristotle considered the very earliest um thales um when it came to the first person to start making naturalistic explanations for the world yeah so the fundamental question these guys are trying to work out it's kind of it's metaphysical so what is the world what's its essence it's co- is it cosmon cosmonical some Word yeah, like cosmogony. Cosmogony. Yeah, cosmogony. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of that word since yesterday. But yeah, it's, um, it's basically a sort of historical cosmology, I guess, in a way, because it's like yeah. essentially that's what they were doing was they're they're trying to come up with natural it's kind of a telos, kind of like a, a teleolo- teleology, but it's it's more the structure of the it's the cause and the structure kind of yeah it's, it's not necessarily a teleology because it can it can be to do with a cause or a purpose but it's it's most of the time it's just literally okay well is there a mechanistic explanation for why so how it works um, as opposed yeah. to what its essence is right yeah yeah um so to this question they're trying to answer and yeah they they are basically the first people to try and do this in a non-religious context so so hesiod you mentioned earlier so, so when he when he had a great idea when he had a poem, he would say it was divine influence. So we was obviously saying, I don't think that's necessarily a proposition, 
just trying to work out the fundamental difference between these two, whether the naturalistic explanation than supernatural. I don't think him saying that is necessarily him saying that a god literally existed and literally put the ideas in his head. I think that's just kind of waxing lyrical about the nature of how he was inspired. I think he's he's just giving a, a poetical attachment to his inspiration. I'm not entirely sure. Like I said before, I think the, the difference between, um, say, a god being the action in the world and, like, say, a, a mechanical action in the world was was kind of indistinguishable. So it's like whether a god put it in your head, it's like, is he substituting god for what we would just consider the the unknown force that is of the unknown force of cause in this instance? Like, is that what? you know inspired him with the poem or was it is he more talking about the, that sort of unknown thing that was that caused the inspiration if you like you know which is endowed with some kind of spirit or sort of mind i think the difficulty is obviously the the, the choice wasn't available to him between these two things so i think based on the kind of default nature of what he's saying that, that it kind of he kind of has to say that because there's no alternative i don't think it's really comparable to the way we would think about naturalism and supernaturalism. Right. And I think the pre-Socratics are the people to really start this distinction and to, to put to start disseminating between different ideas and thinking, well, why is one idea better than another? Or at least why can it be argued to be better? Right. Yeah. And sort of like I sort of mentioned before the podcast, like um it's it's also this idea of knowledge not necessarily being trustable in the sense that um a a sort of a true belief um, is different. And I think this is um, Anaxagoras, um, who's one of the pre-Socratic philosophers who sort of first came up with this idea, this idea that there's a difference between knowing something and something actually being a true belief. Should we give a few examples of some of these pre-Socratics? I sort of mentioned Thales, um, who I think is a good place to start because it's it, who Aristotle considers... But he's basically the, the first philosopher. Yeah, Carl Sagan, uh, late Carl Sagan, also thought he was the first philosopher and he actually thought he was the first, first scientist. scientist. Yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of... Not really, but okay. Uh, yeah, didn't he think the world was made of water? Yeah, so I mean, so he was the first person to start going. Okay, well, and, and a lot. And there's a common theme for a lot of the pre-Socratics where they, what they, what a lot of what they're thinking about is what are things made of and how do things become, if you like. Um, and so Thales thought, and you know, you'll realise that this was not not too uncommon to think about. Well, he thought, well, everything has to sort of be made of something, and he thought that that first thing. Uh, was water and they they called this sort of first thing or the thing that makes up everything the rk it was called the rk was the um the first the thing that makes up all things and like he thought that all things were just made up of water but in different forms you know so you know bone and earth and air is is water but just in a different form is that because there's kind of liquid in everything was that like yeah well so aristotle said in um that the reasons why thales was thinking this is because yeah because moisture seems to be part of you know it seems to be integral in life it seems to be integral in it seems to yeah be imbued in everything and like your later pre-socratics what about fire nye that's not made of water (laughs) um it's not Parmenides. It's I think. Oh no! It's 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 Empedocles. Okay, so I don't have anything written down about. Yeah. So because well, there's bloody loads of them, and they're all called Anax something. Empedocles. Yeah. Um. So it, then you start to have more and more people going. Well, either so this RK, this idea of this thing that makes up all things, is this, um, is this one thing, or it's like you know you had people like Empedocles who thought it was say four separate elements, so earth, fire, water, air, that made up all things, and you know you can sort of mix these elements in different ways, and you get different things yeah and so it's, it's not the substance of what they're saying it's not 
that these ideas are taken on their own are good. It's the fact that how they're becoming to these ideas through observation and testing hmm. and through argumentation. I mean, they're also doing other things at the same time. So Heraclitus, to take an example, he developed the, the whole writing style of writing in aphorisms, right. which is you know, quite, quite interesting. He was the guy who would, I think he would go out into the market, um, go onto the streets in the, um, in these sort of Turkish markets and just like, you know, say aloud his, his philosophies and things. And he would often, and I think a lot of the way his stuff is written is, is through, yeah, aphorism and rhetoric yeah, well, in ways that are very engaging because he sort of developed this through trying to get people's attention. Socrates' big critique with these ideas is that um, they were too aloof because they were thinking about the nature of reality, but not thinking about how to live a good life. Although that's, yeah, that is a caricature because philosophy is credited as, of, uh, I can't remember who says, I think someone much later, Sino uh, or someone, he says that um, it, he was the one who, who pulled philosophy down from the sky and brought it into the, the, the legal dimension, the, the public social dimension and right. got real people talking about real questions. But I think that's kind of untrue. Even from the fragments, we know that they were also kind of interested in this idea of how to live a good life. But yeah, it's the method that really set the stage. Do you know, do you know much about um, Zeno? You're probably best to explain the whole paradox. Yeah, even if you want me to explain it. But I mean, I mean like, to, to take that tangent on, like, yeah, a lot of people sort of identify the pre-Socratics as not... Cause it, this, the reason why they say pre-Socratic is because Socrates was influential in that a lot of people say, well, he's one of the first people to start really talking about ethics and talking about the way people should live. But that's not strictly true because a lot of the pre-Socratics did think about... Yeah. Ways sort of, but they're just normally identified as just being concerned with, you know, the fundamental nature of things. I um, mean, being the first metaphysicians, if you like. Yeah, so like Democritus, for example, um, well known, and you know many people's. I, I think probably my favourite pre-Socratic philosopher as well, just like Atoms guy, or at least known for being the guy to first come up with the idea of there being some indistinct, you know, indivisible unit that makes up all things. He's and, known as the Laughing Philosopher. Yeah, yeah, he's he's. You can see him on the um, School of Athens painting, and he's pissing himself because he. Yeah. Now I wonder where that's from. Is is that just because he was? He was just really cheerful. He used to use like kind of irony and ridicule, and and to, okay. to, in part of his arguments so like like how Heraclitus would use aphorisms this guy would basically just laugh at people and and, yeah. and kind of use that in his stuff he's basically yeah. a, a, an optimist in, in the biggest sense of the word he apparently yeah. a really cheery guy well I mean he was considered a polymath and a, you know an absolute genius and the more you sort of see how some of the fun he was also one of the first people to really start to distinguish mind and matter I think well Anaxagoras was probably the first one but he was also he was the first one to sort of I think it was um the idea that the world has a naturalistic explanation, but it only, but in our phenomenal world, um, is a separate thing in the sense that he was, he was the first one to sort of almost like this Cartesian dualism that nothing becomes real until it sort of interacts with our mind, if you like. Yeah. Um, but he also thought that the, the world existed separate of that as well. Yeah, he's really grounded. You can see a lot of Aristotle coming through, and a lot of that. He's definitely the most materialistic, the most, um, yeah, the the most non. Uh, metaphysical kind of of all the of all these pre-Socratics Plato actually hated him so much he wanted all of his books burned <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, to, to, just, just to, as a side to, to show you how um, how influential these guys really are like Democritus was on Greek money drachmas oh, wow. for, for a long time oh, really? yeah yeah. yeah that, I mean that, so these guys aren't just random niche people like they still they almost still have a cultural influence today hmm 
No, that's amazing. Because yeah, I, I also want to say, like, one of one of this is a very interesting quote from Democritus. But he said, two thousand years before Shakespeare, the world is a stage, life and entrance. You came, you saw, you went away. And I actually prefer that to the Shakespeare version of the quote, if you like. Everyone's a player. Yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. No. Like he's he's it just was like he was an absolute OG for so many of these really interesting ideas. And I think the more I sort of uh, was reading about Democritus, I was like, oh wow, a lot of like these really important ideas that would actually come up you know thousands a thousand or more years later um and be explored again were really sort of like the seeds of that were starting with democritus he didn't even believe in a prime mover he didn't even believe in any kind of deity even even just a designer one so that i mean that's that's incredibly naturalistic so we, we mentioned uh zeno and i think there's you know there's there's plenty of uh pre-Socratic philosophers to mention. I don't know if there's any particular ones you want to give a shout. Shout out to my boy Zeno. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just like the idea of Zeno's paradox. Where, where was it in Italy? Because he's from... Um, who else? Who else is from there? Uh, Parmenides is from there, but I don't know where it is. Zeno was very influenced by Parmenides because if you... Um, you can that that place. I can't remember what the place the bloody town's called now. Yeah, you see, then you have thinkers like Parmenides who are sort of coming along going, nah, mate, nothing is true in a sense like him he was much more this guy who was sort of like well everything is kind of in flux i, I believe it was he the guy who sort of like if you step into a river you can never step into a river twice that's, or is that um, that's heraclitus that's heraclitus talks about flux and talks i don't think he actually said the river thing i think that's something that's been attributed to right. him. right okay because i don't think he would have even thought you could step into a river once because it's not a river it's it's yeah, everything and, it's, every, and you're not ever consistent identity yeah and this yeah this sort of thing and i think para um parmenides parmenides Parmesan. because i always like i always when i read the name of I, I i still do this with socrates where i see the word socrates and my brain goes socrates yeah socrates sophocles so hereticlus was all about flux and movement and change and then um parmenides was more like well nothing kind of changed everything is like just static and doesn't do anything because nothing is necessarily true in in some sense because sort of his axiom um that would come to influence a lot more pre-socratics later on um that from nothing comes nothing so did zeno invent the idea of paradoxes i think he did didn't he i don't know i don't necessarily think so um i think he uses the example of boldness it's like when would you say a person starts to become bold is it when they have one hair on their head well no because they're still bold at that point so it is a little bit like um, the broom that changes handle and brush. Is it still the same broom? Yeah, the the ship of the, uh, Theseus. Yeah, um, Theseus' ship. Yeah, I, I think you know. Again, like even Descartes talked about this with this idea of consistent identity, where it's like at what point? I mean, Descartes uses the example of a candle in meditations, where he talks about um, you know at what point is the wax when the wax is melting? Does the candle become just a pool of wax? At what point is it a candle? At what point is it just a pool of wax? And you know this this goes back way back to um, sort of Zeno and a lot of these pre-Socratic philosophers who started talking about the consistency of identity. So why do you think that's an interesting idea why is that even important to even talk about well it's, it's obviously it's interesting because it, it it's talked about are the conceptions of of identity is identity an actual thing or is it just some like emergent concept that we have like very vague ideas about but it isn't but things don't necessarily have um you know an actual set identity in some sense it's incredibly interesting because i think you know zeno is one of these people who um because he was influenced by parmenides um a lot of his paradoxes were intended to try and get away from this idea that things were real in a sense, because he would set, he would use stuff like Zeno's paradox, which we'll explain in a sec, to try and um, 
sort of erode away this idea that um, things being as they seem. Um, so Zeno's paradox, for example, is the idea. So if you um, half the distance between something, then half it again, then half it again. So say if you're about, you're about to clap your hands, um, what you're doing when you're clapping your hands is you're halving the distance between your hands each time. So I'm going like half the distance, a fourth of the distance, an eighth of the distance, sixteenth, etc., 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 until I've. But do my hands ever contact to clap? If all I'm ever doing is just halving the distance all the time, how do my hands ever clap? Um, and funnily enough, this was actually answered mathematically. Like uh, I believe in the sixth. Uh, 16th century, I is, think. Is the arrow in flight basically the same? Yeah, the idea of arrow in flight is like, does the arrow ever hit its target? Because all the arrow's ever doing is just like halfing the distance, halfing the distance, halfing the distance. Does it ever hit the, you know, does it ever hit the target if if that's all that's ever happening? Um, and what's interesting is this is actually an example of um, what's called a convergent series. So it's, and this is involved in, you can actually explain this mathematically. And it's, and funnily enough, if you, if you sum a half plus an eighth plus a 16th plus a 32nd, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going on and on, this actually converges to one. So you actually end up with getting one eventually. Um, so funnily enough, mathematically, it actually was sort of explained, or at least as a paradox, it kind of actually was solved. Um, paradoxes like this and yeah like you talked about the bold hair problem where it's like at what point um, is someone bold at what point do they you know have hair like if this idea of identity being consistent or you know trying to erode away um, our ideas about um, what is real and what isn't or is you know what's what we call a thing is it the thing we call it etc um, sort of rooted in what Parmenides started and sort of Zeno sort of was carrying on a bit with that just to reiterate these weren't just people coming up with kind of kooky ideas as well um they were actually involved in the community involved in their culture as well so like anaximander was i always get him confused with anaxagoras yeah anaxagoras anaximander anaximendus anaximander yes because those are those are the three boys that yeah yeah all of the same name don't they (laughs) but yeah like so this was a guy involved in things like cartography he was drawing maps he was um uh, working in things like geometry. I mean, Carl Sagan actually says he did the first ever experiment. It's a bit of a bold claim. Well, I think he um, he was the dry, wet guy. So I think he took like Thales' idea that water is the arche and water is like, and he went, nah. And he's, he sort of went, well, I think that there's actually this thing with the apeiron, apeiron, I don't know how it's pronounced. Yes, the, the like um, fifth element. Well, it was not just a fifth element. It was, it was the root of all elements. It was sort of like where everything... It, every, it is the element, and then sort of everything else kind of um, is made up of this. So it's, it's an ar- it's an RK. Yeah, it's sort of it's 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 a sort of RK, but it's it's not like one of the elements that we can sort of see. It's sort of like it makes up water, it makes up whatever. And he had this idea that well, that the the two polar opposites are actually um, hot and dry. I don't think it was later that it was. Um, it's uh, um, the word uh, parsimony. Basically, the, the, this kind of um, reductionist way of trying to, yeah, get to that underlying cause of things, which is very scientific. And obviously, the, yeah, so when Carl Sagan does he, says he did the first experiment, what he's saying is he was the first person we know of to it, try and establish truth through reliability, repeatability, testing, retesting of evidence, that, that kind of idea, which, I, yeah, it, it sounds like, well, surely when people built bridges and things before, this is essentially what they would do. But I think that's something fundamentally quite different. Anaximendus. 
It might be, yeah. I think there's, I think there's a D in the end, like Mendes. One of the Anaxi boys. But he, I think he was one of the first people to actually, as far as experiments are concerned, I remember he also thought that water was the Arche. But his, I mean, he actually did an experiment to try and prove it in the sense that he now used what we obviously called vaporization and condensation to prove that water can become air and, it, you know, then it becomes, you know, a sort of solid thing. And, it, and so he thought, well, okay, well, I can do all these things with water. This, this is proof, or at least this is my experiment experiment shows that it can change forms so it must be the arche yeah so this is why these ideas aren't science because that's not what science is at least as we understand it today but you can definitely see it's a kind of shadow of science it's a proto-science it's there's some attempt to appeal to evidence which yeah just hadn't really been recorded before so i'd say science in its entirety really starts when you get the scientific method which I think involves a lot of other things like peer review and a lot of there is a lot of ego in a lot of these ideas and a lot of you can't really say that science ever like started at a particular point because I think you know even to take the example of like the scientific method I, I think the last formalized written down version of the scientific method that we're still using is probably like from a book a random book in the 1930s that a bloke wrote down it's like you know the actual scientific method itself is a, an idea that sort of grew gradually out of out of you know and particularly out of the enlightenment which was you know a big... well i think you could probably say the same for all ideas like take the example of democracy what the athenians had wasn't really democracy because they had slaves and all kinds of things but yeah. in its modern iteration i think we could say we live in some kind of democratic society 200 years ago that idea doesn't exist the same. Yeah, you know, pinpointing things is is difficult, but I, I think you can say that science didn't exist in the dark ages. It does now. So somewhere along, there has been a genealogy of it ideas. Didn't just like yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying Copernicus just shat it out of his ass. It just appeared. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. It's sort of like I think it's a common um, misconception that it's just kind of like the Enlightenment happened. We all just sort of woke up and then everyone started doing science. It's like, well, no, it was it was like a sort of culmination of different thinkers and ideas and this gradual sort of easing into more and more reliable methods of empiricism and ways of testing. And then, you know, then Karl Popper comes along and it's like, well, actually, you know, inductive reasoning is mad, it doesn't really work. And, like, you know, all this and falsifiability, you know, you have all these different sort of uh, thinkers coming and weighing in on um, how we should do science, what we think science is. Um, you know, as a reliable method of trying to find the truth. But yeah, the genesis of those ideas goes all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And I think, yeah, obviously um, it was it was also not this positivistic curve towards science either. It's not like, you know, um, it's not like we sort of developed culturally or scientifically or philosophically, like in a linear upwards fashion. It's like it's been a bumpy road, lost knowledge along the way, and we've gained it different places and in different ways, you know, yeah. discarded different kinds of knowledge, you know. It's not this sort of linear progression. I think, yeah, so while we probably can't say that they're the first scientists for various reasons, I think we pretty much can say they were the first philosophers. Why is that? But the problem is they wouldn't use the word philosopher back then in the way even Aristotle was well, I think Socrates, you know... Socrates quite liked the term, was it, was it philos, uh, lover, lover of wisdom? It was an insult that they kind of took on, a bit like the N-word. They kind of 
they kind of empower themselves with the using it i think whether you can call them philosophers or not it's it's difficult to sort of say but yeah defi- I, I think i want to kind of separate the historical reality of stuff to how useful these ideas are now in take so like obviously we, we obviously said this isn't they aren't really the first philosophers or at least there's a chance they might not be but i think the idea of them being the first philosophers is useful to us today i'd say that that's when philosophy started at least um, I'd say that without any kind of contention. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's this idea that people will start to become interested in answering these specific questions. It's just the way in which any way of trying to find the truth was formalized just hadn't started yet. So, you know, and the reason why Socrates was so important is because of the Socratic method, the idea of critical thinking or thinking about things through dialogue and critical discussion. Um, it wasn't like predominant then either. It was like, you know, this idea that, I mean, I think it's um, Heraclitus who, he's the one who, I think he also was claimed that, you know, all his knowledge just came to him and he was all just like, thought everything himself yeah, and like everyone else is fucking stupid but me and I'm I'm amazing, I'm Heraclitus, everyone yeah. loved, I, I, I was reading about him, I was just like, Christy, this guy had a massive ego. <laughs> like I think to be doing what they did, they'd have to have some kind of, they literally thought that the world was explainable in their lifetime. And I think, I, I mean... Maybe that was something that people generally felt was the case. I think people still think that now. I think lots of scientists still think that we're on the verge of a sort of theory of everything or a paradigm that if we find ways to quantize gravity, a lot of people might say, well, we might be able to quantize gravity in in our lifetimes. Um, And, you know, obviously that's not, an ultimate answer to everything. Well, but yeah, I, I think these these are fundamentally different questions. I know you 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 hold this view that a lot of science can answer philosophical questions. Sometimes, sometimes it can't. Sometimes yeah, it can. sometimes it, can, it depends sometimes. on the nature of the question. Yeah, I, and I think there are just some ideas that are categorically in a separate space. They're not quantifiable. You know, Hume's fallacy, you know. Um, I think there's there's is and oughts, isn't there? Yeah. And science doesn't answer oughts. Yeah, we'll obviously do a podcast on that probably some other time. Because yeah, do we actually want to get into that? But um, yeah, so there's also this idea of the pre-Socratics. They haven't quite disseminated ideas yet. This this is really the start of the dissemination and the ordering of thought and ideas mm. and concepts. So this it's not, that's another reason why perhaps we might say it's not philosophy yet, because a lot of um, a lot of the time they're working with like one idea like i when we when we use words like metaphysics and ontology it's like they kind of just combine everything and it's like it's it's like it's natural philosophy science is natural philosophy and then the rest is just all kinds of stuff and we we call it cosmogony now but they wouldn't have and it's like what it what things are what things what the nature of being and then where it comes from are all just like one one big idea and then that somehow also links into ethics they don't separate the disciplines final question to end on when we're saying these guys are the first philosophers where does that leave eastern thought i think the problem is a lot of why we focus a lot on the pre-socratics is like i was saying earlier it's like that's where our sort of written records or at least secondary sources for um, people writing about them sort of begins but we have very little it's so much of this stuff is just predicated on what we know from historical records um and yeah and i think we do certainly 
focus a lot on it in the West. But you know, you could say, well, there's a there's a good reason why we do focus a lot on the Greeks because, in you know, like many people say, like um, you know, that's it's the foundation of Western civilization. You just got to read Plato or Aristotle. You know, Aristotle and Plato are just sort of like the foundation for what would become Western civilization. Do you think there's anything fundamentally different about the Buddha? Because he was writing at the same time. Well, not writing, but he, he was around at the same time as Socrates, roughly. Well, I think what's interesting about Eastern philosophy is in in some ways, and I'm not an expert in Eastern philosophy, but it's it's interesting to see how a lot of um, the focus was more internal when it came to Eastern philosophy, whereas um, the Greeks and the pre-Socratics would were very eager to start answer, trying to answer external questions about the nature of reality, what makes up reality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas a lot of Eastern questions were more about um, internal questions about our experience, about our phenomenology, about how to live a good life, about what you know, about these yeah, sorts of I, ideas, and they sort of went further in trying to develop those. And I think the um, the Greeks necessarily did. Yeah, I I think that's largely because. Some of the Eastern philosophy we think of as philosophy is probably not best described as philosophy in the same sense that the, the, the people doing it in the West were doing it. I think the pre-Socratics really are the start of the analytic tradition. And I don't think, I think continental philosophy, which is the other, the other side to analytic philosophy, it, it's, it's a more subjective, um, almost spiritual understanding of philosophy. I think that's something that's probably a, a little bit harder to to write about and do. And I think it really only starts with existentialism and people like Kierkegaard. And it, it's quite a bit of a juggle to do that. And I think there's very little space for that more subjective area of philosophy outside of things like existentialism to, to really operate. So I think when we're talking about Eastern philosophy, because it's not, doesn't come from the same place as that analytic stuff, there's two things. I don't want to be too... Uh, I don't want to be like Orientalist and go, oh, that's basically the same thing as what people were doing in the West. So I don't want to go co-opt um, Afri- all of African thought and go, oh, that's basically the same thing as this. Yeah. But it's also the fact I don't think it. I don't think it is. I just I think it is basically religion, especially how the people took the ideas of the Buddha later. I think I think the the I think the Buddha and Socrates would have got on. I think they would they would have shared a pint. But I don't think at least the way Buddhism has been taken now. I don't think that's anything like philosophy i think that's an ideology i don't think it's necessarily that superstitious at least in some contexts or at least it doesn't have to be but i do think it is unfortunately has unfortunately become an ideology i don't know much about Taoism and confucianism um but yeah i think a lot of the time it's really religion that we're talking about it just has a lot of the same like the same impact and the same the same kinds of areas of discussion that philosophy might take on, but I I think they're probably different disciplines. Not to say that there isn't philosophy going on in the East that is comparable to the West, but I just think let's hold our horses before we start co-opting that into. The, I think it's probably a good thing that we've separated the two. You know, I think right. I think Eastern philosophy has its own place and Western philosophy has its place because I think if you start blending things too much, you end up with again. I don't want to compartmentalize things, but I think it's probably it's probably a good reason that at least until the modern day, when we can have these kinds of conversations more, we have more frames of reference to to work with. Mm. We, we share more frames of reference, and they're not in in certain contexts.
This is my podcast. It's all mine. <laughs>